Hey everyone, this is your host Kyle Wildner Higney on the Outcomes Rocket Pharma podcast. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming Rich Press to the show. Rich advises and connects life sciences clients with a broad range of services that Avalier offers. He leads a team that supports new and emerging biopharma customers and a second team that brings Avalier's extensive data and analytics services to more organizations. He has deep expertise in commercialization, market access, and digital health. Prior to joining Avalier and since arriving in the U.S. from Australia in 1999, Rich has led corporate strategy for AssistRx, been a senior principal consultant for the Bluefin Group, led strategy for Edge Dynamics, and led product management for Abilizer Solutions. You know, he really just has a great breadth of experience across these different key stakeholders in the pharma value chain. Rich has an MBA from Melbourne Business School and uh, graduated the University of Melbourne with a bachelor's in architecture. He lives in San Francisco with his two kids, his two dogs, and loves trying to predict the future of exponential trends in healthcare primarily. And he also enjoys running really far, cooking for friends, and traveling to new places. Welcome, Rich, to the show. Thanks so much, Kyle. I'm uh, excited to have this conversation with you today. And, uh, you know, obviously we've known each other for quite a few years and it's uh, great to see you in this new role. So uh, excited for, for today. Yes, absolutely. And you've been on uh, the Outcomes Rocket podcast before. And so, you know, today I really want to focus in on just the pharma value chain here and really dive deeper in mm -hmm. many of our conversations that we've had in a social setting and kind of outside of this podcast context. But maybe to kick things off, I'd love to just get a high-level overview of what drew you to working in the pharma value chain. Yeah, it's certainly not something you'd expect with a background in, in engineering and architecture. Uh, I think for me, it was really just a feeling that uh, health is such a precious part of our lives and that uh, I had this background and understanding of supply chain and, and data, and I could really um, help out in terms of making contribution to the, the health of patients. Uh, and so... That's really the the ultimate driver, right? How do we how to make people's lives better every day? Definitely. And I hear that so much with many of our other guests, right? It's the intersection of having a positive impact on the world and then a mm. lot of really challenging problems in the US healthcare system. <laughs> yes. Um, to say the least. But you know, I'd love to better understand what you do at Avalier and what does Avalier do more generally? Yeah. So Avalier is a pretty amazing firm, you know, been around for 21 years and started as a, a policy think tank uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., and has really expanded over the years and become not just an uh, advisor on policy to uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, but also, you know, very large market access practice, health economics, outcomes research. And then about six years ago, it was bought by uh, Novalon, which is a public company that does most of the risk scoring for insurance carriers. And that's uh, pretty cool because it gives us access to all of this data on, uh, so there's this huge closed claims uh, repository of data and from about 150 plans that we're able to use and really help drive uh, analysis for, for manufacturer clients. So that's a big part of what's exciting is, right, not just saying, well, we think this is going to happen or directionally, this is uh, what's what's going on, but actually being able to dive into the data and saying, okay, for this specific set of products or for this specific cohort of patients, this is what's going on. And, uh, you know, it's been some great research, for example, looking at, say, CAR-T recently and, and just looking at for a CAR-T therapy, how did that change uh, the, the burden of illness and cost 
for patients by having them on the CAR-T therapy versus not. So really cool to be able to, to do that sort of data-driven analysis. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the focus on both pharma side and health plan side, mm-hmm. they allows you to have a really unique perspective on the market and yeah. leverage those data assets to provide unique insights. Uh, yeah. So that makes a ton of sense. You know, one thing I'd love to hear about from you is you know, what excites you about the work that you do? No, I, I think it's this amazing combination of talent that's at Avalia, right? That there are folks that have played uh, significant roles with most of the stakeholders in the industry. So we've got people that have been with manufacturers, people that have worked in the government. Like I've been uh, doing some work with a Part D calculator. As you know, there's all these new proposals for, for Part D and trying to understand that. And you know, we've got somebody on staff that was in the Congressional Budget Office for 12 years modeling Part D proposals. So it's like incredible to be able wow. to present that expert and say, well, if, if anyone knows what's going on with Part D, it's Rebecca, right? So, so that's been really cool. And I think it's the excitement of being able to, you know, reach out to folks that I know in the industry for a long time and understand where they're at in their current roles and what their some of the challenges that, that their companies are facing and then being able to connect them with people that at Avalier that are really well equipped to to be able to help answer some of those questions that they're they're trying to get answers to. So that's that, that's the piece I really enjoy is, is helping helping people solve problems that they're facing and, and answer some of those difficult questions. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's how I know you, Rich. I mean, the connector, the the broker of relationships and also the problem solver and expert on the topic. And so, you know, one of those problems or perceived problems, depending on how you look on it, mm-hmm. uh, in the pharma value chain is drug cost and pharma pricing. And we've had many discussions about this, but you know, I want to bring you on and really focus in on pharma pricing. I think it occupies a lot of the news cycle and the prevailing right. conversations in this space, but we would love to get your thoughts on just truly where it stands today and potentially you know, how we should think about pharma pricing as we move forward. Yeah, it's what a meaty conversation. I think we're going to just, we're going to solve the problems today, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but I think whether, you know, as we discussed, it, the real issue here is, is, is that the right question, right? That, so one of the topics that we've discussed before is this, this notion of biomass cost disease. And I, I love this idea that a way of thinking about the problem in the sense that if you think about industries where we're able to see productivity improvements and use technology to bring down costs. So we think about electronics, for example, and the fact that flat screen TVs are getting cheaper and cheaper. And, you know, at the current rate, you'll be able to get a TV that'll fill your entire wall and it'll cost you a hundred bucks. And then, you know, on the other side, we've got areas like healthcare and education and housing where we're not seeing those productivity improvements from technology. We're seeing labor costs go up, productivity is not improving, and things just keep getting more and more expensive. So, you know, through that analogy, we might see a four-year college degree eventually costing a million dollars. And so there's a real, real issue in, in healthcare about how do we bring technology to bear? How do we actually get productivity improvements to apply? And so I think there are some real challenges with, with incentives. So, and fee-for-services is certainly a challenge as well here because the moment you get paid for doing more, and yep. it's not always the, the right thing to be doing. So Baumol's cost disease, I think, is one, one huge problem that faces here. And just to, just to define that, Baumol's cost disease is really where labor or salaries increase, but there's no gains in productivity. Is that yeah. correct? That's exactly right. And so it's, it's the reason why healthcare costs and, and costs in education, et cetera, some of those sectors just keep going up, whereas these others like 
consumer electronics, we see see the prices coming down. And so got it. And I imagine that probably impacts the broader healthcare ecosystem more so than it does pharma. Is that right? Or how would you think about that? Yeah, I, I think the challenge has been that healthcare is is not well equipped to at the moment to apply technology and to drive down costs. And I think we see some glimmers of hope, right? There are really interesting areas like LASIK surgery where you know, that has come down tremendously in cost, but it's done outside of the existing system, right? And there are real market pressures are being applied there. And, and we see, you know, the effects of technology and supply and demand. And that is an area that continues to get more cost effective. So there are sort of pockets where you see technology being applied, where you start to see improvements in productivity and reductions in costs. But uh, we've also got a system that is based on fee-for-service at the moment, and there aren't incentives to, there are misaligned incentives in terms of people wanting to continue to do more rather than making sure that we're doing the right thing for the right patients. Got it. And so Baumol's cost disease is really driving up healthcare spend overall. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, you know, technological improvements, at least, you know, from my perspective, there's many new drugs that come on the, right. you know, come into the market and have true impact on, you know, patient outcomes and health overall. And so talk to me a little bit more about that. I mean, yeah. do you think the solution for solving healthcare costs overall, if that's yeah. even a... Yeah, I don't think of scoping a problem like that. It'd be far too broad. But yeah. talk to me a little bit more about you know how we should think about healthcare costs overall and in the context of pharma specifically. Yeah. So I think this is another one where, you know, so much of the attention is on the cost of drugs. And I think that the list price of drugs is is something that draws a lot of attention. And people hear about these million dollar gene therapies and yep. everyone gets, you know, very concerned about that. And it's really, again, are we asking the right question? Because we all remember the 80-20 rule and that, you know, 20% of things uh, cause 80% of the problems. And I think what we're missing in, in healthcare is that drug cost is ten, was about 10% of the total cost of healthcare. It's now gone up to about 15%. A lot of that has been driven by you know, new specialty drugs and, and high cost uh, gene therapies. But we're still, so specialty drugs are now 50% of our total spend in the drug area, but it's not, you know, if drug cost total is 15% of our healthcare spend, then even if we take a little bit out of that, we're not going to reduce healthcare spend dramatically. Right. And so we need to be, you know, the 80-20 rule teaches us we should go and look for the big, the big buckets of spend and uh, go after those. And a lot of those are to do with where care is delivered and, and the healthcare systems and, and the costs of, of services that are being performed. And so I think we worry a lot about how much we're spending on drugs, but in many ways, it's sort of the, the easy thing to point to because the prices, the list prices are there. And I think the other thing that you and I know is that the list price is not what is right. actually paid, right? So, right. Uh, so yeah, I, I think we, we just need to be careful about whether we're, we're really focusing on the right problem. I mean, I think we certainly want to, there are concerns that we pay more for drugs here than in other countries. But then again, there's a lot of arguments that say it's the ability to uh, recover the costs of, of developing drugs, which we know is tremendously expensive, that enables, drives the innovation. And if that ability to recover the cost of, of drug development wasn't available in the US market, that, that maybe those innovative products wouldn't get developed at quite such a speed. And so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a drug pricing, very complicated question, but I also right. think it's the, it's the wrong thing to focus on. You know, what, what we really need to be looking at is where the big buckets are spent and, and trying to reduce those. Right. And that's, you know, focused on cost, right? But I think there's this broader conversation still of what about value? 
you know, quality right. over cost. Mm-hmm. How do we address that? And I, I really think that, you know, many of these life-saving treatments, that we just focus the conversation on new uh, to market therapies that have differentiated outcomes, you know, there's a significant value equation there. And yeah. value driver, if we look at the uh, reduction in healthcare spend or the improved quality of life over a longitudinal way, so over many years. And so tell me more about that. Tell me about kind of focusing on the complete picture of the value side uh, right. rather than just the cost. Yeah, I think that's that's a really great question, Carl, because when we think about, you know, Savaldi so was one of the the first that really caused a, a lot of concern, you know, it was $84,000 yep. for this 12 weeks of treatment. And so everyone focused on the $84,000 and how crazy that was. But, you know, there are a lot of people, that, uh, the manufacturer that had spent a lot of time understanding that this was a drug that was going to cure people from hep C and was probably going to mean that they weren't going to need a liver transplant later on. Yep. And, and when you looked at the cost to the system of a, a hep C patient overall, and you turn them from a hep C patient and that lifetime cost to making that go away, then you would argue that $84,000 was actually tremendous value. And then when you also bundle in the fact that nobody actually pays $84,000, right? <laughs> the net price is, is lower than that. That then, you know, I think in many ways, we, we as a system got great value from that product. And so that's where I think we really need to understand what is, the, what is that drug replacing? And that's, again, why these gene therapies also are, uh, are often so expensive. Not only is it a really small patient audience, but more importantly, if they're taking a patient that has a condition that's going to affect them for life and we're able to remove that, then we can use something like, you know, the value of those life years that are improved to understand, like, I think the concept is qualities that is often uh, used yep. for this. Uh, and, and we can work out what, what is the value of, of that improvement in life or the saving of a life. And often the, the cost of the drug is related to, to that value that it's delivering. And, and that's you know, if we can if we can make that equation work, and we're willing to have those tough conversations about what a, what is a life worth and what is an improved life worth, then I think we can we can more readily get towards a, a value based discussion that makes sense for everybody. Yeah, and you know, we hear this a lot in the industry about kind of this notion of value based contracting, kind of driving towards that. And, you know, just hearing a little bit more about Avalier, you guys are in a unique position having that data, right? And working with both the pharma and the health plan side to truly understand that value equation, which I think so often, you know, is one of the challenges of constructing value-based contracting is, well, what data do we use? How do we measure the improvement? How do we attribute it to the, the therapy of, of choice? Yeah, that's the big challenge with with moving to to value-based contracts instead of fee-for-service is, you know, it's not the case that in every therapeutic area that there's clear endpoints, there's clear diagnostics that we can use to show here's, here's a definite improvement in an end condition that therefore, you know, means that it was worth taking that therapy. And so I think there's tremendous pressure to move towards value-based approaches. And I think where it's possible, and I think we're continuing to see new diagnostic tests being developed, um, new capabilities for doing this. I, I think we'll just continue to see a gradual chipping away and a movement towards a value-based approach just because it's it, it's ultimately the right way to do things. I'm also thinking though that you know the other part of the, the question that we haven't dug into too is just instead of trying to cure people, how do we stop them getting sick in the first place, right? That's right. That's the other piece here, right? 
we, we spend all this money uh, preventing our cars from getting sick and doing scheduled maintenance. And uh, maybe we should be doing a little bit more of that with, with ourselves as, as humans, right? We, we value healthcare so, so much and being healthy, and yet uh, we seem to only be willing to pay for fixing problems when they arise and not uh, spending any money on, on actual prevention and, and helping people to be healthy in the first place. And, and so I think that's, that's the other part of this way to solve the, the healthcare problem is, uh, and the growing cost of healthcare is, is let's focus on and how do we get people to, to be healthy and not get sick in the first place. Well articulated from you, but you know it's so <laughs> challenging, right? So yeah, when, yeah. when is it going to happen, Rich? Yeah, when, what, yeah. when is it? I mean, how long is this going to take? Because we've been waiting for a long time. And uh, what's your sense of that? Do you see movement on both the pharma and the health plan side or what's going yeah. on in the market right now? So I think it's it's been really interesting to watch the wellness space evolve, right? So we've got this small percentage of the population that's motivated to go to the gym and eat right and sleep right yep. and do all those things that we all know what we should be doing. And the challenge is that uh, we either don't have access to the right food or we don't have the ability to get access to good sleep. And, and so there, there are some environmental challenges that certainly need to be developed. And I think if nothing else, last year told us a lot about how inequitable uh, the situation is across the country and across the world. And, and so many folks just don't have access to good food or to good uh, living conditions that would enable them to achieve these these basics. And so I think we're seeing some really interesting movements with with some systems realize, recognize, and some plans recognizing the value of these. And so we're seeing both the Medicare Advantage supplemental benefits. Uh, we're seeing with folks like Geisinger and their food pharmacy prescriptions that you know, there is a recognition that, and even some systems and, and counties realizing that, you know, replacing a building with mold in it is actually much more effective than treating the asthma yep. that the kids face. And so I think there's some, you know, little promising glimmers of hope that we see how important the social determinants of health are. And then uh, the other piece to this, I think, is starting to see how some of these wellness products and programs are starting to show tangible benefits, right? The first round of wellness was all just everybody understood it was good but there was no no metrics. And now we're seeing these wellness companies really get into running studies and showing, showing tangible improvements in health uh, outcomes. And so I think that's going to help. And then I think the other piece is that, you know, back to the sort of the bowel moles and, and the use of technology, if we think about these wearables and how they're improving, how, you know, Apple watches, et cetera, are starting to be able to measure more and more how things, technology such as continuous glucose meters are becoming more affordable if we couple that 24-7 monitoring, we are able to do more remote diagnosis. We've got all the telehealth that's helping with that. And then if we start to put in place incentives such as deductibles in insurance plans, where we start to create a financial incentive, if you are shown to be doing the right things, you're going to get a financial benefit from your insurer, sort of the progressive insurance good driver program, right? And I think as we've shifted more of the cost of healthcare onto patients in commercial plans, we now are creating a sort of enough of an economic driver that if we can help provide people with access to the, the tools and the technology and the lifestyle that will enable them to lead a better lifestyle and get rewarded for doing that financially by having lower deductibles and lower out-of-pockets. I think that that's another potential path towards, you know, technology enabling and helping us to achieve better health outcomes that could ultimately reduce that, you know, avoid getting the disease in the first place. Absolutely. I mean, it's going to be a multi-pronged 
solution, right? Covering yeah. the entire healthcare ecosystem. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm optimistic, but uh, it's certainly going to play out in a, you know, unexpected or unpredictable way in the next five, 10 years. I think that's exactly right. And, and it's, it's one of those areas where it, it is not going to be one thing that, that solves it. But what's tremendously encouraging is, is just seeing the number of smart people and the amount of money that's going into funding new ventures that are tackling these really big problems and trying to, trying to advance it. And, and so I think we'll, you know, we'll continue to see more and more examples of sort of steps forward. And this will eventually start to add up into, into delivering real benefit for us. But it's certainly not going to happen overnight. And it's not going to be just one thing. Awesome. Well, Rich, thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting with me. I mean, I'd love to get a closing thought from you and potentially just somewhere where listeners can connect with you or collaborate with you. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. So I'd say, you know, we, we're in a, an amazing place right now. And I feel like, you know, COVID has taught us so much about ourselves and the value of healthcare and, and also the value of science. So, uh, you know, the fact that we got these vaccines so quickly is just a remarkable testament to the, to the power of science and, and technology. And we're incredibly lucky as a result of that. You know, I can't wait to see what, what comes out of the amazing world of science and technology over the next decade. And, and I hope we're able to really improve things and, and maybe uh, change the curve here on, on Baumol's cost disease. And then in terms of folks getting in touch with me, the, probably the best place is LinkedIn. Yeah, just look me up there and uh, always happy to chat with like-minded individuals about how we uh, take on these problems and, and make a difference. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Rich, for coming in and we will chat soon, I'm sure. Thanks, Carl. <laughs>